Good morning. Welcome to uh, Chapel. It's great to be here with you. Another bright semester. I'd give you all the bouquet of pencils if I could to celebrate a new semester. But I don't do that kind of thing. Uh, as we come now to our, uh, one of our first sermons uh, on the Sermon of the Mount, let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Lord, help us, help us sit under your words, the words of Jesus Christ, our great and only teacher. Help us know them, understand them, and most importantly of all, to live them. So we would be people of your word, people of your kingdom, people who not simply bear Christ's name, but walk in his ways. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. We come to what is undoubtedly the greatest sermon in the history of preaching. The Sermon of Jesus Christ, his Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew sets this up for us to begin with. He tells us that Jesus saw the crowds. He goes up on the mountain. He sits down and his disciples come to him and he teaches them. And Jesus is known as a teacher. He is a, he is a magnetic teacher. He is different to any other teacher people have encountered. And this has always, this has made me think, what are some of the teachers I remember through the course of my life? I can remember one primary school teacher called Mr. Leach. I remember him because of his great kindness to me. I think of some of my instructors in the army who had a, had a great personal presence and they were able to teach technical stuff in a great way. Uh, I remember some of my teachers at theological college and what it is I remember about them, what they taught me. And it, it made me think, you know, what is a great teacher? And what I, what I realized is that what you will remember from a teacher normally isn't the content you get for them. You won't remember so much of, of their pedagogy as their passion. You won't recall all the information, but you will catch something of their inspiration. The greatest impression you get is not from their content, but how contagious their conviction is. And as you go into your own teaching roles, whether that's teaching Sunday school, being a chaplain, or a, a priest, or a pastor, that's what people remember about you. Not necessarily the content of everything you told them, but the impression you made. And the impression that Jesus makes is that he speaks with a sense of unmediated divine authority. He doesn't offer theses to be discussed. He doesn't talk about the latest views from the latest rockin' rabbis. He claims to speak from the interior of God. And the subject of which he spoke was the kingdom of God. And, and in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not offering a kind of a, a cut and paste of his favorite text from the Old Testament. What he's doing is sending forth a kingdom vision about what it means to be God's people, what it means even to be a human being. He's inspiring people to live faithfully for the kingdom. He's instructing, imbibing, imparting a kingdom perspective to his followers so that they would be different and they would make a difference. And that's what makes him so unique as a teacher. He goes up on a mountain like Moses, but this isn't just, you know, Torah 2.0. Uh, he's a messiah, but he's not a warrior. He's a prophet, 
but he's more than a prophet. He speaks on behalf of God and his words hit the people who listen like a tsunami. And nothing that, that is in the wake of his teaching is ever left the same. Jesus sets before the crowd, his disciples, the subject of what is the righteousness that characterizes the kingdom. Amidst the presence of the kingdom in their midst, with God's Son bearing God's Spirit, his teaching, his miracles, the exorcism, these are signs that the kingdom is here and now and Jesus provides the instruction that goes with it. And when the kingdom comes, Jesus says, this reorders the hierarchy of values. Imperatives change. There's a reordering of priorities and we see this in the Beatitudes and his subsequent exhortations. Now when we come to the Beatitudes in verses 3 and following, we could divide these into two categories. We have the promises and then we have the intention. Sorry, the promises and the purposes. In verses 3 to 5 we have the promises. Uh, for those who are poor, deprived of economic means and status, we're told that they are blessed because they will possess the kingdom. In verse 4, there is the mourners, those who experience grief, the pain of loss. They are blessed because they will experience comfort and consolation. Then there's the meek, the unassuming, those in forgotten, the invisible. They will inherit the earth. From all this, we can, we can surmise a number of things. First of all, God is on the side of the vulnerable. The poor, the mournful, the meek, they did not choose to be so. They ended up so. Poverty is not normally a pursuit. These are more ordinarily miserable conditions that are forced upon people. But a tragedy or injustice of their circumstances, often beyond their own control. And yet, consistently across Scripture, we're told, God is on the side of the poor. He backs those who have the least chance of making it. When the world is most stacked against you, God is the most for you. God backs and believes in the underdog. And you better believe that if you're a Brisbane Lions supporter, if you follow that sort of thing. Second, God's blessings are divine grace and it's not inevitable karma. You know, God, God isn't saying, well, Jesus isn't saying that for God, you know, and although you're poor and disinherited, I'm sure we'll turn all right in the end. That's, that's not what he's saying because in and of themselves, things do not normally turn out all right. The Beatitudes do not imagine a moral system where hardship automatically generates good fortune. Uh, the blessings here are not a result of cosmic karma where those poor will obviously become rich later. Those mournful will surely be happy later. Those meek will inevitably be influential later. In the midst of hardship, nothing good is automatic, assured, or inevitable. If anything, hardships become recurrent and life ends up becoming one kick in the guts after another. The conditions of the oppressed do not normally or naturally work out right. 
The cavalry very rarely comes to save the day, which is why God promises to put things right. This is not karma. This is God's eschatological promise to lift up the poor and the mournful and the humble from their wretched estate. And third, on top of that, Jesus says, conditions that appear the worst will be reversed. People are blessed because and only because God reverses what they endure. The poor and dispossessed will receive a kingdom. The mourners will be blessed by God providing their comfort and consolation. The meek are given the honour and esteem they never had. What the world takes away, God promises to give. What the world does to them, God says he will undo. What the world deprives of them, God will reward for them. The world blesses the famous and the fabulous, but Jesus declares the true blessings are reserved for those at the bottom of the heap. The Beatitudes do not beatify the poor and the marginalized. Instead, they promise them happiness and a chance to have the last laugh when the situation seems like that would never happen. Or as Jesus taught throughout his ministry, the first will be last and the last will be first. The kingdom brings with it a great reversal of fortunes. Those are the promises for the least, for the marginalized, the dispossessed, but for everyone, the Beatitudes announce a number of purposes. We see these in verses 5 to 12. Jesus goes on to tell us what it is that should characterize the people that belong to the kingdom and the blessings they can get. You know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But the shocking thing about these Beatitudes is how incredibly counterintuitive they are. These are not the qualities that people normally think blessed or lucky. These are not celebrated or extolled or lifted up. In our culture, there's a different system of beatitudes. Blessed are the ambitious, because they will realize their dreams. Blessed are the beautiful, because they will be admired and fawned over. If you want to know what that's like, come see me afterwards. <laughs> <coughs> that's not true. My mother told me I have a face for radio. <laughs> Blessed are the rich, because they will lack nothing. Blessed are the sexy because, I don't know, they must have lots of sex. <laughs> Blessed are those who are true to themselves because loving yourself is the greatest love of all. Thus saith Whitney Houston. <laughs> Blessed are the rude and bombastic because they have the courage to say what we're all thinking. Thank you, nominee Trump. <laughs> Blessed are the sporting stars because of their physical prowess. Blessed are the celebrities because... They're celebrities. That's what the world blesses. 
But the beatitudes are the exact opposite. God blesses those with a completely different set of attributes and achievements. It's for those who hunger for righteousness, conforming themselves to the word of God. Wanting to live according to God's purposes, God's plan. Blessed are the merciful, those who show a kindness that is unexpected and unearned. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who plow peace in soils of conflict. People have learned that the best way to destroy your enemies is to make them your friends. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who excise self-interest and malice from everything they do, who genuinely want and do good to others. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness or insulted, those who suffer reproach for their conviction and for opposition to their faith, those people who stand up for what is right, even when they have to stand alone. You see, kingdom people are not identified by language, custom, dress, accent, but by their God-centered way of life. They have holiness, not haughtiness. Character, not necessarily achievements. They have self-belief and self-confidence, but not (laughs) self-worship. To be kingdom people means we have to make the Beatitudes the attitudes that drive our behavior. That is what characterizes kingdom people who have the righteousness that belongs to the kingdom. When we come into verses 13 to 16, uh, we then see more of a, a missional statement about how these people are meant to be. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill. It cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus wants us to imagine ourselves as agents of redemption and transformation and he uses the images of salt and light then these are two things that have a positive influence on others. Salt and light, they have a positive influence on others. Salt preserves and light illuminates. Now, salt is fairly common for us, expensive, probably overused. Um, One thing I've learned is salt is crack and cocaine for old people because they put it on everything. I've been, I went into a house where an uh, elderly person passed away and there was, there was, there was a lot of salt. Every, every cupboard had piles of salt in it. But in the ancient world, salt was not quite so ubiquitous. It was, it was a spice, it was an expensive commodity, it was used for everything, and for food, agriculture, religious rituals, textiles, all sorts of things. Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth. A preserving force, perhaps even flavoursome, to stop the normal spiral of decay. Not a moral police, but a prophet, teaching people to love God, to do good, and to resist evil. But the analogy comes with a warning. If salt loses its saltiness, it's useless. And here is the words to take to heart. Be who you are, or be discarded. 
In regards to light, Jesus said the believers are the light of the world. This is is language taken from Isaiah. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. God's plan to reach the world came to and through Israel. The promises made to Abraham would happen when the covenant people radiated the love of God, when they showed the truth of God, proclaimed this God to the nations. This promise or vocation, we might say, is inherited by the church, who, as the renewed Israel, are shining the light of God to a world that is cold, brutal, and dark. Analogous to that is the image of a city on a hill which I think would make a great name for a church. (laughs) Someone should do that. It's a great name for a church. Because a a city on a hill is is a place of refuge you run to. Everyone knows this. The Australian Labor Party has a speech delivered every every number of years called A City on the Hill that goes back to an important address by Ben Chiefly. We are to be light. We are to be this city. And, and, and light is for shining. You don't take a light and say, oh, this light's very precious. I don't want to run out of it. I'm going to come over here and put a bowl on it to preserve my special light. I mean, that's stupid. In fact, if you, use a, if you cover a flame-based light, far from preserving it, you will, in fact, snuff it out. You know, but to put this together, salt is for shaking, light is for shining. Christians need to shake and shine. <laughs> Within reason. <laughs> but when we do that, it results in good deeds and even the pagans look on and glorify God. You know, that the fact of the matter is in Australia, out of the top 25 largest charities, 23 of them are faith-based. The world may not like our religion, our crazy rituals, but even the most ardent critic has to say, these religious people do some good. What we have to take from that is to remember this. Don't trade in self-preservation at the expense of your mission. Ships may be very safe in the harbour, but that's not what ships are for. So this is, this is our introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Sermon. And this is where Jesus offers blessings for the marginalised. He tells people how they can be a blessing, the attitudes they need to have, how they can be salt and light. And when I think of this, it reminds me of a game I play with my children. It's called the opposites game. I give them a word and they have to tell me the opposite. So let me play it with you. I'm going to give you a word. You tell me the opposite. Up. Down. Sharp. Blunt. Sister. Brother. Dark. Light. Blue. Red. Hairy. Hairy. Sausage. <laughs> I did that to my son and he thought about it and he said... Not a sausage. (laughs) Probably right. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is playing the eschatological opposites game. He says, poor, they will be blessed. The hungry, 
they will be filled. They will be filled with righteousness. You see, out of this great reversal that God is doing in the kingdom, we are called to be agents part of it. We need to have this righteousness that characterizes the kingdom. Something that will make us salt and light in a world that is brutal and despairing. What you have to do now, we don't have time to go into it, what you have to do now and next is to discern how do you declare the Beatitudes to the poor, the impoverished, the downcast, the depressed. How do you declare that? How do these Beatitudes become the attitudes to shape you and your church? And how will the community you belong to be salt and light in your own context? On that note, let's pray. Our Heavenly Lord, we pray that when we are confronted with your word, your teaching, we would never be the same. We would have the conviction that your word brings. We would be changed and transformed. We would be blessed as people who know and experience these Beatitudes. And as we are blessed, as we follow you, we pray we'll be a blessing to those around us. We would be salt and light and a city on a hill. For Jesus Christ and the extension of his kingdom and the glory of God, we pray these things now. Amen. So to declare that we are God's chosen people,